Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week and next, we're going to be revisiting one of Dr. Newfeld's great series, and it's called The King Goes Public. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Announcement of the Kingdom. I'm going to run a series of names by you and see if you recognize any one of them. Owen D. Young, Pierre Lavelle, Hugh S. Johnson, James F. Burns, Mohammed Mossadegh, and Harlow Curtis. Recognize them? I'll bet you didn't recognize even one of them. But according to Time Magazine, those are all people who were once designated as Man of the Year by their magazine. That means Time Magazine believed that they had the greatest impact in that year of all persons living on Earth. So here's a newsflash for everyone who's seeking fame. It is fleeting. I have a memory of visiting the ancient synagogue in the ruins of the Jewish village of Capernaum. I sat there by myself to pray, and a thought came to me. I had come from the other side of the globe in order to sit in the ruins of this little place that time had definitely not forgotten. People from all over the world have come by their tens of millions for but one reason. Jesus of Nazareth once made his home in this little village. And then, the more I meditated on that, the more impossible the whole thing seemed. Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? I'm very sure Time magazine would not have mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. No one who meant anything would have noticed him. And where did he spend most of his energy? The region of Galilee, a sparsely populated region of Israel, a nation that was then thought to be the backwater of the world. Furthermore, the farthest Jesus ever got from his home was Jerusalem, and they didn't like him much there. And yet here I was in the ruins of this tiny little village, contemplating the hundreds of millions who have journeyed there, all because Jesus of Nazareth once lived there. The famous of his day are all but forgotten, and this man from Galilee will never be forgotten. Amazing. Have you ever wondered, I mean, on a strictly human level, how it is that the name Jesus has become the most recognizable name in the history of humanity? In the next two weeks, I'm going to trace the events of Matthew 3 and 4, which record how it is that Jesus of Nazareth became known. I'm calling this series, The King Goes Public. How did Jesus go from obscurity to the name which is above every name? These two chapters of Matthew trace the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The Bible records the birth of Jesus in dramatic fashion. When God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, it may have been an act of divine condescension. I mean, the God of eternity found in the body of a baby lying in a feeding trough in a tiny little out-of-the-way village of Bethlehem. But remember, the event was attended by the announcement of angels and the arrival of magi from the east and even drew the brutal reaction of one king. But after the birth of Christ is done, almost nothing is said about him for somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 years. Yes, there is that one incident in the temple at the Passover when he was 12, but that's it. In fact, only Luke mentions that childhood incident. Mark mentions nothing. All Matthew mentions is that Joseph took his family, Mary and Joseph, and lived in a city called Nazareth, and that's it. Imagine what's really going on during that time. The great announcement that God has become a man, and now for 30 years, virtually nothing. 
Jesus, the Son of God, growing up in a town that was small and insignificant. It had no trade routes passing through it. It was an agricultural village, but it had no economic importance at all. It probably had a population of somewhere around 400 people, perhaps a few more. Whatever Jesus did and said there was not recorded. Who records anything anyone says and does there? Luke does tell us that he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and man, but we're only left to imagine what that might have meant, I mean, in his daily life. But Nazareth had a secret. The legitimate king of Israel was growing up among them. And more, the legitimate king of the entire human race once played in their streets and went to their school and built things made of wood that were probably a part of some of their buildings. But all the while, God was biding his time. He would bring out his son at just the right time. And when the time was exactly right, Matthew records these words in Matthew 3, 1-2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew's gospel, unlike Luke, there is no introduction of John the Baptist. He just appears. Some Bible teachers think that's probably because Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and in Jewish circles, the name John the Baptist had already become renowned. No introduction was necessary. This man had begun his preaching in what was called the Desert of Judea. You have to go down a very steep descent from Jerusalem down to the lower Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea. And there you'd find John preaching and baptizing people. According to Mark, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Of course, that doesn't mean every single soul was there, but it does mean that a great chunk of Judea was making their way to hear this amazing man preach. And what he had to say had everyone's attention, because the people who heard him didn't just love to hear him preach. They believed him to be a prophet of God, and that was significant. That's because all Israel hadn't had a prophet for over 400 years. In fact, the Old Testament, in its last prophetic writing, which is the book of Malachi, ends with these words. I'm reading from Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day comes. So many of the Jewish rabbis taught that the day of prophecy had come to an end and would not be revived until the day of the Lord arrives. But there was some disagreement whether the prophet to come would actually be Elijah risen from the dead or a great prophet come in the power of Elijah. And here was this man named John wearing clothing that mirrored a description of Elijah of old. And people loved to hear this man because the common people believed what he had to say. They believed that what he had to say would trigger the messianic era. Before Jesus began his public ministry, God sent a man to prepare the way. I hope we can all see the lesson in this. And the lesson is this. The way of Jesus is obedience to the Father's plans. When Jesus' ministry was in full swing, he would make a statement that is remarkable. I'm reading from John 5, 19, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus never sought fame. He only sought to do what the Father had directed him to do. He was content to remain obscure in Nazareth until the Father called him to do his will. And before the Father called him, Jesus patiently waited while John the Baptist performed the ministry God had called him to accomplish. I've known preachers who are unhappy because they labor in an obscure field. I've seen business people unhappy because the opportunities that have come to others have never come to them. I know of single people who go through life feeling deprived. 
I know of people who desperately want to be famous. I know of people who want to make some kind of mark in this world that outlasts its time. There are many people who dream of becoming a star one day. There's a drivenness around so many of us that simply belies the fact that we simply can't be content in God. It's as if we're on this relentless path to either make a mark that outlasts us or we want to impress God in some way by showing him that we're able to accomplish something great on his behalf. And both, I am sure, are idolatry. Why would you want to make a mark in this world since it is eternity that you should be thinking about? And why would you want to do anything for God since, frankly, God is capable of accomplishing anything on his own without us? Some of you will remember the story of Eric Liddell. He was the athlete who became famous in the 1924 Olympic Games for refusing to run on Sunday. He was giving up what would have been a sure Olympic gold medal in order to go to church and worship his God. His favorite hymn was, Be Still My Soul, which contains a line, Leave to thy God to order and provide. Yes, run hard, work hard, but leave to thy God to order and provide. And so as the Messiah, the Savior of the human race, waited patiently for God's timing and and God's command, John the Baptist was drawing an amazing crowd along the desert of Judea beside the Jordan River. He was ever popular. He was preaching with passionate fervor. I hope you see that the king went publicly only at the bidding of his father. And God had determined that a man named John would prepare his way. And so that's the first lesson we learn about the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus was content to wait in obedience for the will of the Father. And the application ought to be felt in our own lives. We ought to be content if we are obedient to him. It ought to be enough for us, any one of us, to say, if the Father has called me to do this at the present hour, I will gladly do that which he has called me to do. That's Jesus' bidding. That's Jesus' will. That's Jesus' example. And so if you're the kind of a person who's overcome with anxiety about making your mark, put it aside. Ask God to make you more like Jesus. We'll come back to this after the break. In the first few verses of Matthew 3, I think there's already quite a few observations we've gathered about Jesus' life and his nature. We all know he was and is the great king, but how many of us really consider Jesus' emphasis on obedience? as he waited until the perfect timing to do the Father's will. It gives us something to think about as we try to emulate Christ's example. So after the break, Dr. Neufeld continues his discussion on the way of repentance. Can I smoke pot? Well, this month on Truth and Life Today, Dr. John Newfeld welcomed Mark Ward to discuss his book, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture. You know, by looking at the biblical teaching on creation, government, medicine, and alcohol, this book sets out to help people make wise and God-honoring decisions about marijuana use. Rather than just providing a list of proof texts, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture looks at what the Bible teaches as a unified whole, from Genesis to Revelation, so we can more confidently answer the question, what does the Bible say? So for the month of April, we want to make this timely book available to our listeners for only $8, and it includes shipping, handling, and taxes. So give us a call today, would you? 
The number is 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And remember to order yours today because quantities are limited. Let's leave Jesus in Nazareth and get back to the action where John is preaching with this rising sense of expectation that the messianic age is about to break open. He's preaching with urgency, and as he preaches, he has only two things to share. First, the time to repent is now. And second, there is a great day of expectation. The kingdom of heaven is about to break open in the present hour, and as he preaches, the crowds are just getting bigger. I want us to see how the message of John was not only paving the way for Jesus, but continues to pave the way for him today. See, the way of Jesus is a way of repentance and expectation. John the Baptist is preaching in the Judean desert next to the only source of water out there, the Jordan River as it flows into the Dead Sea. And the crowds grow every day. And yet his message keeps being simple. Two things, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I don't know what you think of repentance. I think the word is negative for essentially two reasons. The first is that we have all seen people repent whom we don't actually believe. How do you feel about the bankers who were largely responsible for the subprime mortgage crisis? It was motivated by greed and caused the largest recession in the world in more than 50 years. It's all fine and well to say you're sorry after you've been creating so much pain. But we all kind of feel that if anyone is sorry, it's only because they got caught. We feel the same about Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme that destroyed the retirement funds of many. Or how do you feel about the famous pastors or politicians found guilty of adultery? I bet many of us wonder if they are only sorry they got caught. We've all seen the quintessential politician standing before the cameras with his wife by his side holding hands, apologizing to his constituency that he had been frequenting prostitutes or any number of other things. Most of us are just tired of these things. We want no more of these public tears of repentance. We would rather there be a better sense of morality in the first place rather than the sorry damage that gets done. But when John preached repentance, it was of a very different variety. First of all, the word itself, repentance, needs some definition. The way it's used in the Bible has both a backward and a forward aspect to it. The backward aspect is the one that we're most familiar with. It deals with genuine sorrow and remorse for sins that we've committed. And when we think of this aspect, it includes a number of features. One is intellectual. It is a profound realization that what I have done is wrong. It's evil, immoral, or sinful. But repentance also bears with it a sense of emotion. There's a deep sense of grief that overwhelms the person who repents. But there's also more. There's a volitional sense around repentance. Because John called people to publicly repent, he's calling for the end of secrecy, the willingness never to hide our sins again. And perhaps most important, repentance, if it's real, hates the sin and is less concerned about getting caught. I'm reminded of David's sin with Bathsheba. And what repeatedly amazes me is that David wrote a psalm about that. And you and I know that the Psalms are written as a kind of a hymn book to guide Israel's worship of God. David was insistent that all Israel would learn about his sin from that day forward, and they should sing about it in worship so that they would also learn about God's great mercy. No attempt to remain secret, rather an open proclamation. 
Well, that's the backward-looking aspect of repentance, but there's a forward-looking aspect to repentance as well. John would preach, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Change the course of your life. If you're genuinely remorseful, break with your evil past. Many of you know the name John Newton, the man who wrote what is perhaps the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. But did you also know that before his conversion, Newton was the captain of a slave ship? In his own written words, he admitted he was absolutely ruthless with the slaves. He mounted guns and muskets on the deck. He aimed at the slaves' quarters. He had the slaves horribly whipped, and he put them in thumbscrews to keep them quiet. Now that you know that, do you understand why he sings of the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me? Some have wanted him to say that saved a one like me, but Newton would never have allowed us to sing that. He wanted the word wretch. You know, whenever I tell that story, some people feel quite upset with me. So he repented, did he? Well, that didn't help the lives of the families he ruined, did it? And that would be right. He could never make that right. But did you also know that John Newton, as pastor, mentored William Wilberforce, the politician who's given credit for ending the slave trade in England? Newton also wrote a highly influential tract about what he knew about the slave trade, and the tract changed the hearts of many in England. It was called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, in which he, like King David of old, wanted his country to know of his sins and of the grace of God and of the importance of ending this horrible evil. And in the end, it took Newton some time to get there, but he provided an invaluable help to reaching his nation. And that's what John the Baptist preached. If repentance is genuine, you'll have to change the way you live and what you believe and how you influence people. And all of this, said John, is what you need to do to get ready when the kingdom of heaven arrives. There's so much to learn here, isn't there? See, the way to Jesus is the way of repentance. I wonder what God is saying to you. Is there a sin that you've been clinging to and that it's just time to renounce? End your secrecy with this thing and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Look, I don't know when Jesus will return a second time, but the time to do business with God is now. The day will come when it is too late. But of course, John was not done. He had one more thing to say. The reason, he says, you must not delay when it comes to repentance is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For us reading this some 2,000 years later, the explosive force of that announcement has lost some of its weight. But in that day, the day it was made, it set the entire city of Jerusalem on edge. I don't have time to explain everything that the phrase kingdom of heaven would have meant for the Jews, but let me very quickly run through a series of things it would have meant. First, it was the fulfillment of the promise made to King David of old, that one of his descendants would mount the throne and rule not only Israel, but all the nations. Second, it meant that the day of the Lord was at hand, the time when God would judge the nations. Third, it was the time in which the new heavens and the new earth were about to be revealed. Fourth, it was the time of the inauguration of the new covenant with God that Jeremiah had spoken about. And fifth, it was the planting of God's rule, not just on paper, but in the hearts of men and women. And lastly, it meant the utter and complete overthrow of evil and of Satan himself. Now, some of us might say, well, wait a minute. All that stuff didn't happen. In essence, life went on just as it always had. And over the next few days, I hope to show you why it did happen, just the way John announced it. But I want to make sure at this juncture that we do not get ahead of ourselves. For now, let's just notice that when John announced the kingdom, it brought an incredible amount of expectation, which led to repentance. And I've said that the way to Jesus is the way of expectation and of hope. Things aren't going to just carry on the way they always have. 
The Messiah is coming. And you and I need that hope deeply implanted as an ever expectation. But back to our theme. Jesus appeared on the scene after God had prepared just such a message. He created an expectation in the hearts of people. First came the announcement of a kingdom, and then only after that came the king. What we do with that message is to realize that all the great moments in which God reveals his glory are done not on impulse or according to the plans of human beings, but they're designed in heaven. We too, just like the citizens of Israel in the time of John the Baptist, stand before a great moment in history, and that moment is called the second coming of Jesus. And if John were here, he would say, then your day is as significant as mine. Repent and live with expectancy. So for the next two weeks, we're going to discuss how God prepared for the coming of his Messiah. And as we retell the story, we'll continue to come back to the theme of John, repent and believe, live in the light of the revelation of the glory of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we move towards the Easter season, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see how great and glorious is the King who has come to us. His name is Jesus. John, thanks again so much for your message today. I'm, I'm looking forward to it as we go through the chapters of Matthew 3 and 4 as we continue our series, The King Goes Public. But John, as you were talking about Nazareth and other places in Israel, I was wondering, how much does your visits to Israel impact your, your thinking of Scripture or how you think about Christ? Yeah, I mean, you know, Ben, I've, I've thought about that. And in some ways, you know, I'm going to say not at all because I still read the same text and I try to read it within context and I try to understand the background as best I can. But there's something about being there that makes it come alive because in my own mind, I see the location and I, and I get a sense of the distance between places and, and I recognize when it's a hilly country or a plain or something of that nature. So you begin to recognize uh, the, the, the stage upon which all of these things were played out. So uh, it's, I guess I'd have to say that going to Israel makes the Bible come alive. You know, I was thinking uh, uh, when we had that opportunity, just a few of us to visit Israel, uh, we were at the old city of David, and we were, I just get you to describe it because we both felt overwhelmed by the opportunity there. Yeah, we sure did. I mean, you know, the old city of David is, you know, there's such an archaeological dig going on. And uh, if you don't know what the city of David is, it's actually that the size of Jerusalem at the time when David captured the city. So they've been doing some great archaeological digs, and they've come down to the very roots of the city itself and to the gates of the city. And uh, there at the gates of the city, of course, would have been the gates where uh, where Abraham and Melchizedek would have met. And, you know, you've, you, you've got to think to yourself, my, all the things that God has done in this very location. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. 
Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.